0: Chicago. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, one of your hosts here, also the senior producer of Bridging Chicago, and I am so thankful that you're joining us for another episode. Remember, you can find all the episodes of Bridging Chicago, including our prior four four seasons. At www.bridgingchicago.com. You can listen to the podcast anywhere that uh, you prefer on whatever platform because we are out there on all podcast platforms. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bridging Chicago. And you can find us on LinkedIn by searching Bridging Chicago. Today, I am really excited to be joined by Lou Sandoval, who usually I say I'm joined by this person and here's what they do. But Lou, if I did that, it might take a while. So We'll just get into it, but I want to say thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank
1: you, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm very excited about this opportunity to talk with you about
0: um, my
1: story. So,
0: Yeah, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about your story. Um, you are a a technology executive, board director, author, speaker, DEI advocate, avid sailor. Somehow you do that in your spare time, so I guess you don't fail much, <laughs> uh, but... You do all these things, and um, we're excited to hear about those, but we always start with where you're from, and we're happy to do that with you because, as I understand it, you are Chicago born and bred.
1: Yes, I am, you know, and, and you know, it's interesting. I, I'm, a, I'm a very proud South Sider. I'm a Southeast Sider, actually, to that, to that nature, and that's, a lot of people say, well, where is the Southeast Side, you know, because everybody thinks the East Side of the downtown area is the East Side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But for us, it's really, it's where as far as you can go in the city on Lakeshore Drive, and it turns into basically Indiana almost. I I grew up a stone's throw from the Indiana border border and about two blocks from the lakefront. So. uh,
0: So, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Go ahead with your thought there.
1: No, so so I, I, I grew up first in the Cottage Grove Heights neighborhood, and then about seventh grade, we moved over to the South Chicago neighborhood where my dad was a steel worker at United States Steel, and so we were basically did that because one, the house was closer, but two um, to, to work. But but two, it was just, you know, uh, it was a great opportunity to kind of be in a different neighborhood. And, and I, I, I missed my original neighborhood, but it was great. It was a great opportunity for us.
0: Yeah, I always find it interesting when people move in their childhood because I spent my my whole childhood in the same house, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we were in another house for a couple of years. I was, you know, really, really young, but um, it was in the same town. So it's like the the concept of people moving as a kid. It just fascinates me because I can't imagine what that would be like to like have your life uprooted and just move somewhere else.
1: Right. Well, it was interesting, that transition period for me happening in seventh grade, I had done all of my primary school at one grammar school. So I think the concession, man, I I didn't have a say in it, although they asked me if I would do it. And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. But the concession my parents made with me, I guess, was that I could complete my eighth grade at the original grammar school. So we basically commuted back to our old neighborhood. And um, and I finished uh, grammar school at uh, at Our Lady of Hungary, which was at 92nd and Kimbark, and then in the Burnside neighborhood, um, an old Hungarian parish that had been there since the, like 1800s. And uh, yeah. really amazing experience just seeing that neighborhood. I, I like to say that um, I grew up on the South Side. When you know, when you look at the backdrop of the thriving post you know post-industrial era. know there was a lot of pride in chicago as a manufacturing city much like many other you know what we now call rust belt cities but you know and there was you know you could see the impact of that um and you know the the trickle and ripple effect of that was was impressive and um the neighborhood that i grew up in cottage grove heights um when we moved there it was kind of a mix between um um white and then uh, african-american but every african-american family that grew up there was they were all nurses, professionals, et cetera. So everybody that I went to grammar school with, they went to a, it was a Catholic grammar school. So they went there with the specific Mm. intent they wanted to learn. So Mm -hmm. we all had that common value. And everybody that went to my grammar school, we all ended up going to Catholic high schools um, mostly. And then, um, you know, people that went to Northwestern, DePaul, they went to different, you know, different universities. And now, I mean, I still keep in touch with a lot of my high school uh, grammar school friends. And and it's amazing to see where what that neighborhood generated. You know, I think in the what i call the fall of the of the South Side and the closure of the steel mills and the evaporation of eighteen thousand jobs um and the death of the industry that supported so much of that, um there was an ex migration. And we still see that today. We look at yeah. the census results, you know, quarter yeah. quarter million African Americans have moved out of the out of the South Side and they they have continued to do so. So I think it's just because the the economic vitality is not there, you
0: know, and and you need that city. We haven't um, talked to many people who live that far south. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find it really interesting how you're describing this, because um, we know that people have been pushed out of various areas of the city, but really don't often know why that happens. And so it, it was interesting that you're sharing about the jobs that were lost. Um, and for you, did that have an impact on your family, um, and if it did, I mean, what was that like for you growing up, or, or even just seeing that happen to friends of yours, I mean, how do you, how do you kind of figure out what that means?
1: Well, it's interesting, because, uh, you know, I'm transitioning, so I'm now in my, my teen, my early teen years, as this, this is happening, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and I remember on the times, you know, you know, my I, I had the benefit of having a stay at home mom. My mom was the, the homemaker, my dad was the provider, but he worked in a job making, you know, the equivalent I think I remember seeing once, you know, he would share with us, um, he made like like seventy thousand dollars, which in that era was a lot of money, you know. And yeah, but he did yeah. that working a lot of overtime, double time and a half. So that had an impact because he had to put four kids through private school, you know? And right. and, and I and even though we might have had some financial challenges at different times. I, my parents were so cohesive as a team that they didn't let, we didn't know that. I mean, I'm sure it was, I'm sure there were some sleepless nights, you know, cause there were various points in that era that the, the, you know, there'd be a lockout or they would go on strike and yeah. dad would be home for a week and we're like, dad, what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, or the union's trying to figure out what they're going to do with the company and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, eventually you know, in the mid 80s, um, it, it got worse. And then in the early 90s, it just, you know, they, they had the eventual shutdown. And, you know, my dad got retired early with a lot of a lot of mileage on his odometer. And, I, mm-hmm. and, and that happened to a lot of families because, I mean, there's a certain pride that you have when you're able to provide for your family. And when that pride and that dignity is gone, it's, it, it's where that's where the problems start. And so yeah. what I saw happen in our neighborhood is people start moving for opportunities. So the neighborhood, you know, opens. Um, people turn over their homes because they can't afford to pay for them. So then they go vacant. There's, you know, vandalism and just all kinds of things that set in. Um, alcoholism goes up, substance abuse goes up, family issues, um, you know, surface, and it's just a breakup of the nuclear family, and then that just begets all types of other issues, and that's yeah. where. And the South side really has never recovered, I think. And yeah. because even out in the Chatham, I had friends that lived in Chatham that went to my grammar school and that area I, I would visit through Chatham and it was an amazing neighborhood, very, a lot of pride, a lot of, you know, upstanding, you know, uh, double income families or single income families. And once all that fell apart, it just, it, it got replaced with an area that nobody wants to go to anymore, yeah. you know? And, and that's what, that's what happens when, you know, and, and it, and, and for, so for me, it's like I traveled to a different world. I went to undergrad at DePaul University and just going from the South side to the, the Lincoln Park campus. Like I commuted my freshman year and um, it was like another world, you know? Mm. And mind you, during that era, of the early 80s, um, Lincoln Park was in transition. It was going from a predominantly um, Puerto Rican community to a gentrified, you know, we'll call it yuppie community mm. or yuppies were going in buying the two flats that had been, you know, two family homes to, puerto rican families and and all of a sudden um turning them into single family homes that are worth now millions um and then later later knocking them down and creating mcmansions in the city so you know it's just it's interesting to see all that happen but for me going to the north side was like a completely different world especially coming from an era where you know there was so much pride on the south side that was then kind of starting to fall apart
0: so one of the things i want to ask you about from what you said is um you mentioned how people wanted to provide for their families. And I think that there, especially on Chicago's South sides and West sides, there's this perception that people don't want to provide, that they actually want to try and do as little as possible to get by. But what I'm hearing from you is that people really do want to do the work to provide for their families and to take care of their needs. Um, but it all, it isn't always as simple as just like where they just don't want to get a job and there are jobs out there that they just don't want to get.
1: Or, or or they don't have the means to to, to transport themselves to those jobs. So I mm. think you know. So there was the second era in the '90s of the South Side where a lot of the CNC and plastic uh, manufacturing facilities started you know um, coming up in the in, in the South Suburbs, the Western Suburbs. A lot of injection molding facilities. Um, so some people pivoted and they went to those manufacturing positions. But then um, when that became an issue. You know, when that got moved to Mexico or to China or different places due to NAFTA, then that evaporated. So, you know, it's like people will reinvent themselves because they want to provide. I mean, if you ask a person and you say, hey, would you take a a handout or would you you know, want to provide for yourself? There's a certain pride that comes with being able to provide for your family, you know, especially for that era where, you know, the man of the house defined himself as the person that provided for his family you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's, it's an interesting, there's a, you know, I studied, um, there's an interesting, so they call it, it's a physiology, um, biology experiment that I, I read about a sociology class, but it was an, 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 an interesting episode of where it was a, a, a gray falcon had injured itself and uh, a bunch of zoologists had taken the gray falcon in and nurtured its broken wing. And, you know, a gray falcon's a hunter, right? So he's used to providing for himself and bringing the scraps of the mm. rabbit back or whatever to the nest. And, you know, so during this time that he was rehabilit- being rehabilitated, you know, he got used to being fed hand to mouth, right? Hmm. And then, so after a bit of time, you know, when he got healed up, you know, this is a big animal, so they're going to let him go. They, they, they released him. Interestingly enough, he came back to the zoology place, sat on the perch at the same time they fed him every day um, and expected yeah. the handout. And so, it's, um, it's somewhat of a metaphor for human, for human dignity and, yeah. and, and the pride of humanity, because we would much rather, you know, create and, and, and build for ourselves if given the opportunity, but we have to be given the opportunity. It's when we're not that we become dependent and then it's yeah. just a downfall,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a great point. And I think that it's a great metaphor to help that sink in a little bit. Um, I want to ask you because I I like to talk to Chicago people about this, about this neighborhood concept and interaction with neighborhoods from neighborhood to neighborhood. So you live at least in a a couple here and two very different ones, um, or at least as we know them now, two very different Mm -hmm. ones. So for you, how did you see this neighborhood concept and, and how did you see neighborhoods interacting with each other? Did they kind of interact with each other? Did people from your area come up to the north side to the downtown area or did you kind of stay in that, that area? Well, we,
1: we had to, since everything was driven around the family, we would come up on Sundays when, when my dad would have the occasional Sunday. He worked ships. So like every other week, he'd have a Sunday off. So we would drive to okay. the north side, go to the museums, go to Lincoln Park Zoo. So I got a chance to explore different parts of the city. And different cultural institutions and the like. Um, but, you know, the, the age of Chicago, um, you know, we'll call it identifier is what parish did you grow up at, you know? Mm. And so early on it was our lady of Hungary later on, when we moved to South Chicago, St. Michael, the archangel. Um, so, you know, everybody says, well, you know, what's your parish? Where did you grow up at? Where'd you go to grammar school? That's everybody always uh, relates to that. Are you a Catholic league kid or are you a public school kid? You know, yeah. so what were you, you know, Catholic League South, Catholic League North? What was it? So there's that aspect of it. Um, so then when you, you know, when you start to kind of interact with people, like I live in Bridgeport now, and it's an interesting, another neighborhood, because as uh, going to Sox games as a kid, you knew that you could not go west of the viaduct on 35th. Yeah, you just couldn't. Okay. You know, I mean, I think once in like eighth or ninth grade, we went to a concert at the amphitheater, which is off of 43rd and Halstead. And we parked on the opposite side of the street because we found street parking and we didn't have to pay for it. And I think we came out to, you know, people harassing us and saying, hey, what are you doing in this neighborhood? You know, so it is. That's how it was. I mean, now I love it because Bridgeport is probably one of the more diverse neighborhoods in in Chicago. I mean, it's like my block looks like the United Nations. It's great. So, I mean, that's yeah. why we selected it because it's a lot like the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I love hearing these stories from Chicago people about neighborhoods, because I think that they really point a lot to where we're at now. And, and even, you know, I've lived downtown, in the downtown area for a while now. And I think that, um, one of the things that I really like is how it changes every day, because obviously we get a lot of tourists and but with tourism comes Uh, multiculturalism because there's people from all over the world coming here. And while they're not necessarily living here, um, I think you still can get that exposure to that if you go and look for it. And if you just, you know, Hey, you talk to someone while you're on the train together or while you're, you know, waiting in line at the art Institute together or whatever, Mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of opportunity to learn about people from all over the world.
1: Yeah, no. It's amazing just walking around like going a hot like lately when it's been very nice go down to the bean or go down to mm-hmm. what I call the faces fountain, you know, and and mm-hmm. just see all the fan, just watch just people watch and you see all the yeah. different uh you know nationalities that come to Chicago and you know they say we're still a little lagging in in the the post pandemic, you know, return of tourism but yeah. I I'm I'm optimistic that this summer that'll that'll change.
0: Yeah. I think people want to yeah, get out and want
1: to they want to start traveling when that we're done with being locked up, so <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> I am right there with you um, I know that when you first started at dePaul, you wanted to be a doctor that was that was the goal of yours <laughs> that's what you thought you were going to be, and path changed a little bit, so talk to me about um like going in with this desire to be a doctor, and then kind of what changed about that
1: well, you know I think it really starts with um a curiosity. I think I was always very curious in what made things tick. You know, mm. I was that kid that, you know, and this might sound kind of weird, but so when my pets would die, like I had a goldfish die, I wanted to see what he looked like inside, you know? So, and my, my uncles had bought me a, like a microscope and uh and a, okay. and a, like a dissection kit. So I actually, my mom, I think I scared her once because I was outside in, in, in the backyard. And I, had, I was supposedly going to bury him in the backyard and I decided to cut him open just to kind of see what he looked like. And then I wrapped him in a napkin and buried him, you know, because yeah, I was just yeah. curious. So that was always my curiosity. I'd cut flowers apart and try to make look at what the stamens and the pistols look like inside of them. So that was that curiosity. But I think it got nurtured further in in my involvement in Boy Scouts, which happened in r- roughly about okay. fourth, fifth grade. And that's really where I started. You know, I mean, it allowed a, a very I won't call a very nerdy kid. To really stretch his wings and try a lot of different things, and that's where I, um, I effectively, you know, got, got really uh, got involved with a lot of STEM, you know, merit badges, and then it allowed me to kind of get out on the water as well. Um, so that's where I was first exposed to sailing. But it mm. was um, it was really where my where my passion for science um, kind of started. And then you know I I went through high school. Um, I wouldn't say I was a, an amazing student. I kind of had to work hard to get my grades. You know, it's not like was not, I'm not gifted uh, in any such, such capacity, but I had to work hard and I got the grades that I needed to get. And I got a scholarship to go to DePaul and then I decided to major in the sciences. Originally, I started out as a radiology, tech, radiologic technology major and shifted okay. it midway through my freshman year um, into uh, into a biochemistry major. Uh, So, I majored in biochemistry, minored in physics, chemistry, and psychology. So, it was easy. Yeah, (laughs) easy stuff. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: uh, And and then I got accepted to medical school and then decided that that kind of wasn't what I wanted to do. Because, you know, and I've always been this kind of entrepreneur, which is kind of the, you know, the, and that was stoked by, you know, selling cards, selling candies, different things. And and, and so there was always that side of it, you know, that, again, building things, seeing what makes things tick. Uh, building companies, building businesses. So you know I kind of pivoted on that.
0: So quick question. while you were um, doing your undergrad, did you see in your classes, did you see a lot of people of color? Did you see a lot of diversity in those classes?
1: Um, we had I, I would say a few a few Hispanics, very few African Americans, um quite a few Indians, you know okay. um, you know of, of Asian descent. Uh, Asian, we'll just say Asian period, um, but that was a diversity that we had, you know, and DePaul yeah. was, um, you know, kind of evolving. Now you go to campus and it's amazing, you know, what they've done with the campus and the yeah. the broader reach that they have for the university versus just um, working class students from Chicago um, like myself, but um, that it, it is, it is, it is amazing. But yeah, I was one of the few, you know, especially in the sciences, because there's a lot, there's a huge drop off and it's probably why I'm such a big advocate now for making sure that, um, uh, underrepresented communities see the impact that a STEM career can have for them. You know, whether it's coding, whether it's going into medicine, whether it's going in engineering, um, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, um, a a liberator, you know, and, and you can really recreate yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's awesome. And I think that obviously it did a lot for you and, um, I like to talk about how people choose their first job or career path, because I think that we have a lot of people who listen, and especially at this time when we're, you know, people are graduating and Mm -hmm. kind of coming to that spot where we're trying to figure out what's next, um, whether they're graduating from high school, graduating from college, or maybe, you know, it it is the great resignation. People are doing all kinds of different things. Maybe they're going Mm -hmm. to school now um, as an adult. And so for you coming out of college, What sort of what were the motivators for you and behind behind finding your first job and and how did you go about doing that?
1: Well, it's it's interesting because my what ended up resulting in my first job started out as an on campus interview. I was coming back from class and I was going to my dorm and there were some there were some tables set up in the student commons. And it was a company there, a company by the name of Abbott Laboratories. Okay, mm-hmm. and they were doing on campus. They're like, hey, you know, are you are you a science major? You know, they saw me carrying a, a you know, big huge textbook. You know, <laughs> and, and they're like, are you a science major? They're like, would you like to would you like to learn about the career opportunities at, at Abbott? And I'm like, well, that's kind of. And I didn't have anything going on that afternoon. So I stopped to talk to the recruiter and, you know, she's like, do you have a resume? And I said, yeah, I do. I do in my room. I can go grab it, grab a copy. She's like, well, let's talk and then you can grab it and bring it back. We'll be here for the afternoon. So I did that. And, you know, didn't think anything of it, it just happened, you know, and you're yeah. like, well, if something fits, we'll be in touch. And yeah. then, you know, so the whole summer happened um, post high school, this is my senior year post, a whole summer happened. I go and, um, you know, I'm doing my, I'm doing some some um, thesis work out at, uh, at I got accepted into Loyola for medical school. So I'm already working at the Loyola campus doing some research with a researcher there and then out at Argonne National Labs in um, in um, in the Southwest Burbs. And so I'm kind of doing this research and all of a sudden, you know, I have this epiphany that I don't want to go to medical school. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the reality of coming out in massive debt and, you know, the changing you know, medical environment, because it started. Yeah. That, was, that was the impact first of HMOs, you know, when they started to kind yeah. of change medicine and, uh, and then the cost that would, it would take. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to go further in debt to do that. So I, I made a lot of decisions at that point, that summer and, and sat down with my dad and said, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, well, I, I don't want to do it after all. And he's like, well, you're done. Uh, you goes, I just don't want you sitting around the house. You know, I hope you don't. And it's like, you didn't teach us to do that. So. It seems like I think it was about a month, almost a month after that, that conversation that I get a telegram and it's from Abbott and they're like, Hey, you know, we, we're happy to have met you. So-and-so met you at the campus. We'd like to see if you'd be interested in coming in. And we'd like to talk to you about a program that we're, uh, that we have for science majors with high leadership capabilities. And we'd like you to, um, um, to talk to us about it. So I went in, I interviewed and lo and behold, you know, I started a couple months after that. Yeah. So I went, into, I went into this program and, and that's kind of, you know, so now I'm on the business side of sort of the medical, you know, medical profession. So.
0: Yeah. Well, and you describe yourself as an entrep- entrepreneur by nature. So I, I'm guessing in all this, you kind of, at some point thought, one of the things I really want to do is start my own business. I want to be my own boss. And so. Right. It, was there a point that you remember thinking that, or is this that built into your DNA right. really?
1: So it was, um, So my career took me from Chicago, um, then at Abbott Park, basically, North Chicago area, out to Seattle. And in Seattle, so I'm I'm sailing with, you know, uh, our Murray in the sailing community. And I'm talking to customers as I'm building rapport and the sales process. And I see things, mementos and stuff around their office and artifacts, you know, sailing artifacts or pictures of boats. And I'm like, so you boat? And they're like, yeah, I actually have a boat in the harbor over at Chilchul. Mike, how often do you get out on it? Um, not a whole lot, you know, because I'm so busy with my practice or this and that, you know. And and, and I started hearing that theme over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. And um, and I already got ingrained in the community in Seattle. So then um I'm i like I went to a couple vendors, you know, a couple guys, uh technicians and the like, and I said, if I pull all my business through you and we make the customer the central focus of this, you know. Let's kind of create a, you know, sort of an empire where we can have these guys and manage their boats, make it ready for them, you know, ma- do the maintenance, you know, provision them, you know, do the the, month, the yearly upkeep, the monthly upkeep, the weekly upkeep. And they're like, awesome. I said, the only thing is we have to do an amazing job under promise owner over deliver and very simple, you know, we'll call it mission. And um, and then I went to these guys to, to these customers and I said, so if I could offer these services for you, would it be worth X to you? And they're like, Absolutely. So then I started, you know, so we started, you know, managing four or five boats and, you know, it was a nice side revenue. Um, You know, obviously what pushed, pushed some of it through to the sub vendors. I take a little bit for myself for being the sort of the project manager on the role. And um, it then gave me access to use their boats. And that's when I started doing a lot more ocean sailing and, you know, cross cross Pacific sailing. And it just, it just opened doors for me, you know, and then, so I I sold that business when, um, when I sold it to one of my subcontractors, the book of business, and then, my career took me from Seattle to Miami, and after being in Miami for a little bit, I started getting calls from guys who said, "Hey, listen, you were doing this for so and so up in Seattle. We went to medical school together. Blah blah blah. You know, would you be interested in doing the same thing?" And I said, "Well, ah, you know, I got a lot more responsibility you now. I got a larger area." They're like, "No, come on, we'll help you. If it's money, we'll we'll I'll spot you." And I'm like, "It's not bad. It's just it's time." So yeah, this, this yeah. one guy was really persistent, and um, I replicated the same model. So. So that's kind of how that all kind of rolled up.
0: Uh, I I was thinking um, about Tom. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Domerick.
1: Oh yeah, uh, Tom. Tom Tom is a mentor of mine. Yes. Okay,
0: he was a yeah. former guest of our podcast.
1: Oh really? I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. <laughs> so you have to check out his episode.
0: Uh, I, I believe, believe it man. was season three. It may have been season four, but I think it was season three. um the, you know they all flow together now. We've had now we're oh, in our wow. fifth season. Wow. Um, but really interesting really interesting guy a really great guy and just a really fascinating conversation with him so i thought that might be something you'd be interested in checking out
1: yeah tom uh, tom is actually um he's a mentor of mine and a very good friend so um it's interesting because we get together and do dinner on a regular basis and
0: you know we're connected
1: in a lot of different ways uh so it is uh, we we did my book launch recently he came out with his wife to to the launch. It was amazing to see him there and kind yeah. of be able to acknowledge him.
0: So yeah, Well, we're happy to be another connection in the life <laughs> of Lou and Tom. I was thinking, I was like, hey, like this, these guys, I, if they don't know each other, they should. But uh, I'm right. glad that you're familiar. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is really just filling a gap, right? It's just finding a gap in something and, and creating something that can fill that. And then for you, it sounded like once you were able to do that, you kind of just walk the path that made the most sense in, in right. growing that. And so, if there are people out there who are thinking about starting a business or wanting to become an entrepreneur, um, who are nervous or who are even, you know, who did start and they're, you know, in the infancy of that, what would you say to those people? What, what advice can you give? I, I know it's it's a big question, but you know, but well, what can you say to people who are who have that same mindset?
1: Well, it's a big, you have to start with a pain point, you know, it's like, uh, what is the pain point that you're trying to improve to fix?
0: You know, it mm-hmm. could be a
1: product that, it, that helps a pain point. It could be a product that creates a pathway to opportunity for others. Um, you know, like in the case of like, uh, the Marine services company, it was a pain point, you know, these guys yeah. had boats that they weren't using. So yeah. the, cre- you know, the filling of the gap, as you said, you know, was to create an avenue for them to facilitate that enjoyment of their boat an asset that they had and, um, and make it simple for them, you know? So yeah. that, you know, in today's terminology, you know, in technology, which is kind of a field I play in now um, it's, you know, you're seeing this massive, you know, run of innovation. People are seeing things, Hey, yo, this was done via spreadsheets for tw- three decades, you know? And, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we could do this through artificial intelligence and machine learning. Awesome. Let's create, let's create a, a platform that'll, you know, integrate all of that. And make yeah. it easier, you know. Uh, okay. i work, work. I work now at. I advise. Um, you know, my firm advises uh, entrepreneurs at the seed, and the pre-series A stage. And um, when I talk to, the, you know, founders, and they're kind of, because um, founders are usually really good at the idea part, you know, the vision. Um, they may be good at the operation of the business if they've had experience in that, um, or they're good at the technology side of it, the product. Mm. Okay. But seldom is an entrepreneur really good or a founder good at all three. Usually, you have to either get a partner, a co-founder, or or build a team around you. And it requires, yeah. while it requires a fair amount of hubris to say I'm going to make this happen and have the vision and be positive, it also requires a bit of humility to say I got to know what I'm good at and what I'm not. So yeah, yeah. I really work best with those founders that are that are humble enough to say I'm really good at the vision. But I'm not good at the rest of it, and I need okay. help there. And that's so that's why we come in and we help them,
0: you know. Yeah, yeah. I've learned that self awareness is very important as an entrepreneur. So yeah. um, that really points to that. Um, I do want to get to your book, so let's talk about your book because I want to make sure we get right. there. Because, I mean, you've you've lived quite a life already, and I'm glad that either someone told you to write it all down and get some thoughts out there, or you decided to do that on your own. But um, I guess, talk to me about how the book happened. How, how did this idea come about? And then, and then how did it actually get to be a book?
1: well i think it, it it happened in a couple different phases i think in high school i was blessed to have a lot of mentors growing up i was i was blessed to have a lot of mentors that kind of were my little angels that guided me along the way my high school guidance counselor was a big one in that in that he encouraged me to to really create a bucket list early on and to pursue that bucket list and that bucket list had a lot of things like you know um uh cross an ocean sail sail around the mm-hmm. world you know yeah uh, climb yeah. a mountain jump out of an airplane you know, different things like that, and then softer things like make a difference in a child's life hmm. be a be a be a parent, find the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, create an amazing family, you know and um so I started journaling probably in I'm gonna say sophomore year in high school, more you know people do yoga to kind of find clarity of mind for me, journaling for a kid that was somewhat of a geek and a nerd was a way to kind of you know talk about the different insecurities that I had, the different challenges that I had and to find clarity of mind. And I just started journaling and keeping these journals and notebooks and stuff. And they traveled with me throughout. And yeah. then during the pandemic, you know, I've, um, you know, I, I was mentoring a couple of different people. And they're like, man, your life just seems like it's always on a roll. You're always accomplishing your goals and you're succeeding and you're, just doing so many different things. they are like, it's amazing. It, don't you ever struggle at anything? And, and I kind of started hearing this over and over. Mm. And I'm like, you know, and you know that you ever seen that meme that's just basically like an iceberg and it says success
0: yeah, and below yeah. the
1: water is like all the things that lead to your success. Right. Well, and and I, that, that came to mind and I'm like, and I said, no, actually, I've struggled a lot. I said, I'm the epitome of failure. I failed a lot. And in failing, you become better, you know? Yeah. And and. Yeah so I started going through all my journals and kind of putting them in outline format. And then I started seeing a cadence. And, um and that's when I said, you know, and uh, I had another, another colleague, his uh, son was writing a book, and I got a chance to meet the publisher, um you know, at uh, Fig Factor Media. And that's when uh, I talked to Jackie Camacho Ruiz and she said, uh, Lou, you need to tell your story. You need to yeah. tell your story. You know, some, it, it can, motivates so many different people, yeah. especially in this pandemic. And I think it's, it's the right time because during the great resignation, everybody's reevaluating what it means to work and what do you want out of your life? And for me, the different challenges, you know, uh, being diagnosed with a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at one point in my life was a reality check for me mm. to say, you know what, if God, if I can get through this, I will never complain another day in my life about what mm-hmm. I have to, what the load that I have to carry. And I got through it and I'd not looked back. I, you know, yeah. but it shouldn't take, it shouldn't take a catastrophe like that in somebody's life, like a heart attack or cancer to have you value the fact that every day is a gift. So yeah. don't leave any stone unturned. And so for me, that's the sort of the thesis of the book is really no matter what, you know, you can do it. And the 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 cover selection, the graphics on the cover were very symbolic because it is it's a blind curve on a hill. And as you read the book, you'll know why mountains are so important to me, but uh metaphorically and in, in real life, but it is a blind curve because life is a lot like a blind curve sometimes. You know, yeah. you're on this road, you got to stay between the white and the yellow line, and you don't know what that turn's going to look like when you come around it, you know? You just know you got to stay on the road. And yeah. so yeah that tenacity is what keeps you on the road. So for me, that's really the the nexus of the book of what drove me to drive to see that despite all the different challenges that I've seen in my life, whether it's heartbreak or loss of a job or loss of a a loved one or whichever cancer sickness, you can do it. It's because if this simple guy from the South side can do it, you can too,
0: you know? Yeah. Well, if that doesn't inspire you to read the book, then check your pulse because I don't know. That was, uh, that was definitely, I'll definitely be getting it. The book is called tenacity for life lessons in business lessons in life, business and world around us. So, um, we'll definitely be ordering a copy because it, it sounds fascinating. Your life has been fascinating and there's so much more to go, which is the amazing part is that there's chapters yet to be written
1: yeah I'm still right Nana. we'll see what the tenacity the next tenacity series goes on. I'm working yeah. on a second book right now i'm kind of I'm organizing it, but uh uh it'll be at least a, a bit before I kind of come out with that because i i, I want to give this one some time to really uh, you know kind of saunter and um uh, you know go and talk to different people about it and share share the vision share the story
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we hope that people do uh Lou can you tell people if they want to connect with you if they want to look at the book and and see if they want to purchase the book, um, how they can do all that. So, um, the easiest
1: way is via my website. So there's two websites that I would recommend. One is www.luosandoval.com. And then the other one is, uh, www.tenacityforlife.com, which is the book site. Both of those are kind of linked to each other. You can find me through either of those. Um, the book's available on Amazon. Um, we're working on the, um, the ebook right now, and then um, we'll be going into the studio to do the audio book very soon. So, oh, awesome. uh, yeah, so but we'll have that. I'm sort of an audio book guy because I kind of churn yeah. at a very high rate. Um, yeah. So I, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you always see me on, on headphones when I'm walking someplace. It's probably, <laughs> probably listening to a book. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I love audio books, so definitely be looking forward to that. Although I don't know if I'll wait. I also, I, I actually like um, physical books more, but um, yeah. You know the time it's just audiobooks are so easy.
1: Yeah, no. Physical books are good. So if if I love a book a lot, audio, I will buy the hard copy. Okay. And then I'll read it a second time and that's when I annotate on it.
0: You know? Yeah. 'Cause yeah. you know,
1: cause you know how on audio audible you can you can kind of do the yep. electronic notes. I do that, but that's never enough for me because I gotta be able to open it, go put a post it on it, open it and revisit it, you know, again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do that about pen paper. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah is that you commit, it to, you commit it to mind a lot more, I think, when you do pen to paper. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to give you a chance if there's anything else that you want to share, anything you want to leave us with, I want to give you that the, the stage. So the floor is yours. If there's a thought you can leave us with, um, we'd love to hear it.
1: No, I, I think, you know, fundamentally, I think really our, our city is going through, our our world and our country is going through an amazing time right now. Um, where everybody's kind of reprioritizing things or looking at at it. And I think really what I like, I call it my true north, and I think everybody has to look at what their true north paradigm is. For me, yeah. I use a mnemonic of a pyramid where the top is the success that you can be, the, the best you. The middle is is the, are the factors that contribute to you being happy. Okay. And then at the base of that pyramid are your core values. So yeah. that's what you say, stand on they lead to you being happy and fulfilled in your life. And then at the pinnacle, they lead to your success. That's your true north. So for for me, when I coach like individuals or mentor them, that's kind of what I say. You've got to find what your true north is. And then you just got to go in that direction and continue to know what, what, what makes you greater and stay away from the things that don't, you know, because it's so easy to to get sidetracked. And life's going to throw you curveballs. And if you know where your true north is, you'll be able to stick with it. So
0: yeah, that's, so that's kind of my
1: message for everyone.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Again, if you want to connect with Lou, make sure to go to lousandoval.com. That's where I went to find out all kinds of information about Lou, to read about his book, and see about getting that on Amazon. But um, Lou, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. I know it's a great resource, and so we appreciate you giving that to us.
1: Thank you, Nathan, I appreciate, I appreciate your time, and, and thanks for all you do in telling these stories in Chicago.
0: Yeah. yeah, we love it, so we'll keep doing it. Thank you again to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Bridging Chicago Podcast, and we look forward to connecting with you down the road. Thanks, have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts, under certain conditions, and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.